Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. So anyone who knows me knows that I am riveted with everything to do with air travel. So today is really exciting because we're speaking with a commercial airline pilot. And while that may seem like quite a different field to be talking about, probably different to the one that you're in, I can guarantee that there are similarities and lots to learn. So it's my incredible honor to welcome Ricardo Nunes to the show. Welcome, Ricardo. Hello, Joanna. Yeah, now the pressure is definitely on, I guess. <laughs> the pressure was on for me pronouncing your name. <laughs> I do. That was really good. Okay, so con- good. Congratulations good. on that. Thank you so much. So why don't we start with a little bit of an introduction into who you are? Okay, so my name is Ricardo. I'm from Lisbon, Portugal, born and raised here. I joined the Air Force, the Portuguese Air Force, when I was younger. I did mainly search and rescue, so I flew helicopters in the Air Force. After a while, after about 90 years of flying in the military, I crossed the dark side, as we used to say, which is the airlines. So I currently fly airlines all across the globe. And I also have a special interest in foresight and scenario planning as well. And I guess that's why you found me and I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's quite a... uh broad mix of experience that you have from going from military nine years, now flying for a commercial airline. And I can imagine that you get sucked into all of the normal corporate politics that a lot of us get sucked into. Um, And then verging off into foresight. So let's talk about foresight for a quick second, because obviously that's an area of interest for me. So how did you, how did you discover foresight? You know, in the military, we are quite used to use scenario planning as well. Maybe not on the sense that we use it now in foresight, but it's something that is quite normal for us. And a while ago, I attended a course which was geopolitics, uh, strategy and foresight from the National Defense Institute of of the Portuguese military. And that got me hooked. And what happened is I met guys from very different areas diplomats, different companies as well, from the military and a group of us thought that it would be a good idea to start an institution, which was the Portuguese Foresight Association, where we try to promote the use of scenario planning and foresight in the Portuguese society. And from there, I guess, I, as I told you, I got hooked in, in it and I started developing some projects in the area. Yeah, amazing. So you're a co-founder of the Portuguese Foresight Association. Yeah. So how much do you balance that with your like day job? Well, right now it's actually quite easy because we are a little bit uh, we don't we don't do a lot of things right now because it it depends on our on our free time, on our members' free time and to be honest, we don't have a lot right now. But what we try to do is uh, we try to develop our main objective is uh, to promote it in the Portuguese society. So we try to host some events, for example. We try to promote it in universities, in local schools, so that people can start using it very early on in in their careers or in their teaching times as well. But it's not easy, actually, because we all do different things. We all have different jobs. And as you can imagine, the time is not that easy to, to get. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a really nice balance because it's very brain intensive work 
foresight. It is, yeah. But it's also very, obviously very collaborative, particularly in the way that you're doing it, because you're sort of like teaching others how to understand and embed foresight principles and tools and methodologies like scenario planning. So I can imagine that that is like a very different mindset that you need to apply when you're doing that versus when you're doing, like when you're flying an airplane, right? Well, actually, there are some similarities. Of course, we try to do that, but it's not easy. But I can give you an example. When you Mm -hmm. start flying, one of the main principles is they tell you to, you have to fly ahead of the plane. So you, you are always thinking ahead of the plane, thinking about different scenarios. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen in 100 miles, 150 miles from now? What are my different options? So honestly, the mindset is very similar to what you do in foresight. You are in a very unconscious way, always testing your different scenarios you have in flight. So I think you do it in, in, a, very, in a very natural way. So doing foresight is almost the same thing when you're trying to, to get people to know the, the tools and get people to know the concepts around foresight. It's not easy, of course, but I think you can use some of those skills you have in aviation to, to do that. That is so interesting and such a great analogy too, because I think maybe some people think that because air travel seems like such a well-oiled machine, you know, that you have your correct me if any of this is wrong, but you have your flight release before you take off, right? Like you all get together, you've got your paperwork, you've done yeah. all of the the fancy work and making sure everything is set. There's a conversation with the crew before you're about to take off. There's conversations with air traffic control as you're flying. So it feels very procedural and like everything is kind of mapped out to a T. So maybe people don't think that actually throughout that entire process, you have to be thinking about the what if, like, what if this happens? What if that happens? How am I going to react to that? And constantly take that into account. Yeah, all the way. Imagine you're crossing the Atlantic from from Europe to the United States, for example, and you're reaching Chicago, for example, where you live right now. Imagine there's bad weather. You have to be constantly thinking, so what's, what's, what am I going to do if I cannot land in Chicago? Where am I going to right now? What are my alternate airports? What's the weather there? How's the runway there? Can I leave my passengers there? Can I go from there to their original destination? And this is a very simple example of what you have to do in flight and constantly be doing this with a lot of different things you you do while flying an aircraft or a helicopter. So it's, it's, it's actually very, it is scenario planning in a very short term, you know? So it's a seven or eight hour flight where you are constantly evaluating your options and building scenarios in your mind for what you do. And that helps you to react as well when you get into a situation where it is of course, unexpected, yeah. right? So have, yeah, you, sure. have you, I mean, I can imagine that you have in your, in your time been in a situation where you've thought through the different scenarios that could happen and then one of them does play out and you're sort of already like one step ahead because you've prepared mentally for what yeah. you could do? Well, I can tell you that that's what we always do every six months in the simulator. So that's what we are, we are trained to do. So they, you get in the simulator, you know, and they give you a lot of different uh, situations that you have to navigate through. And that's basically to train you to react and to help you have this kind of decision model that you have to have when you're flying for real. So if it happens for real, you already have your decision model or you already have the experience to face that situation. 
So we actually do it quite often. It doesn't have, it doesn't need to be, you know, in a, in a real situation flying, hopefully not, you know, so the, <laughs> yes, hopefully so not. <laughs> thank God everything goes very smoothly and it's, it's, it's uh, usually it's a very calm flight, but you're trying to, to do that in the simulators. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess even something like weather conditions, they could be viewed as an unexpected, you know, situation, but also like the fact that weather is in a way unpredictable is a normal thing that you have to deal with. So it's kind of probably balancing the two things where there are conditions that are unpredictable and that's just a part of the process. That, that's part of the job, of course. The, the weather is unpredictable, but you can have a pretty good idea of what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. Of course, it, it doesn't always is like you think is going to be. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the job as well, you know. You're not going to fly through in a hurricane, that's for sure. But you can have small differences on what you are expecting and then what you are going to find. And the flying that you do now, I can yeah. imagine, is quite different to what you did in the military in those it conditions, <laughs> right? Like particularly thinking about anticipatory thinking and the what if, what if this happens, what if that happens, the what ifs are probably quite different in the military. Yeah, they were a little bit different depending on the mission you did. I used to fly helicopters, so I did search and rescue. So that was a very demanding mission. And of course, uh, we usually flew operationally when, for example, the weather was really bad. It was the other way around. So people needed help when the weather was, was not that good. But then again, the, the mental process that you have, that decision-making process is almost the same. If you are an aviator in the military or in the civilian world, you need the same set of skills, I would say, to do that. Of course, the, the challenges that you face are a little bit different. If you go to fly in, um, for example, in Mali or Iraq or Afghanistan, of course, you're your set of scenarios are a little bit different than if you're flying on a non-aggressive kind of environment, of course. But the, those skills that you have as an aviator, as a pilot, are basically the same. So we, I think we think the same way if we, we are in the military or in the civilian world, but the challenges are, are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I can imagine in both situations, whether you're flying a helicopter or a rotary versus fixed wing aircraft. So rot yeah. rotary is the yeah. helicopter. The helicopter, yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> Learning as I go. When you're flying in the military versus when you're flying for you know, a commercial airplane, for those reasons, I can imagine in both situations, you're trained to remain cool under pressure so that you can stay calm and react in measured way when a situation comes up. How do you change as a person across those different situations? Because I can imagine that you, you know, over time, you have built more skills to be able to like, manage your emotions, manage your fear levels, you know, manage your ability to calm other people. How have you changed from those two experiences? Well, that's actually a very interesting question, you know. I, I don't know if I able to answer it in a, in a straight way. It's something that um, develops inside yourself while you're growing and, and facing different situations. It's not something that I can actually quantify or uh, explain it in words, but in the military you used to have this expression which is train hard and fight easy. 
So basically, the secret of it was training. If you train for those difficult situations, if you train for the worst situation, then when you're facing a real one, which might be as hard or probably a little bit easier than the one you trained to, you have that confidence in you and you've been trained to do that and to face that situation. And that gets you to be much calmer than perhaps someone else who hasn't trained in that particular situation. So I guess that's the, 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 the secret. How have um, specific experiences over time changed you as well? Like, do, you, do you find that you've built resilience as you go through those specific real life situations where you do have to cope with the uncertainty and those potentially frightening events? Yeah, sure. Experienced pilots will take decisions in a very different way than a rookie one, you know? So experience is very important when you're talking about flying. But again, when you face some situations or very specific situations, they can change you, not only as a pilot or an aviator, but also as a person. Because um, imagine this, in search and rescue, of course, I remember we saw some situations that if someone told me, I would say, you know, that's from a movie of Hollywood, you know, that, that, that doesn't happen in real life. But it does happen in, in real life. And the only difference between reality and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. And sometimes reality doesn't make any sense, you know. <laughs> and that changes you as a person as well and mm-hmm. makes you face some, I don't know, make, makes you face life in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And probably opens your mind to the greater complexities of the world or opens your mind and your heart to the fact that, that sometimes the world does not make sense and yeah. yeah, things are not linear and complexity is just a part of life. Yeah, I would say that this is kind of philosophical, but I guess it makes you a better person somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and particularly being able to embrace the complexity and not to reject it or to, you know, crawl into a corner and try to hide from it. So I really like how you've applied that kind of thinking. Like you're talking about, you know, training, simulating. This is all very connected into foresight where, you know, we do workshops and scenario planning. And yeah, exactly. It's like get get yourself into that situation where you are faced with something unexpected. How do you react? The more that you can do that in a simulation, even if it's a workshop, the better prepared you are to face that in a real, real life context, whether it's at work or in your personal life. Yeah. And you are going to react in a very different way. You know, you're going to be much calmer. You're going to be much more assertive. You're going to be much more confident. And that's also very important, especially when you're talking about the corporative world, you know. You learn not to panic. And I think that's a very important thing as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I can imagine that that's probably what people think of quite a lot for airline pilots. Is like there's so much pressure. <laughs> there's so many things that you're trying to to do inside of an airplane to get everyone from point A to point B safely. And then there's so much pressure associated with that, particularly when you have a lot of people on the airplane that, you know, I think a lot of people would say like, I could never do that because it's so much pressure and so much responsibility. Do you ever think about that or are you past that point now? No, I do. Uh, I'm not sure if pressure is, is the right word because again, we're trained to do it. I think the the other word you said, which is responsibility, is the it's the right word. You know, it's hard to forget that you're flying two hundred people in the back, and you are responsible for their lives. Uh, you're responsible for them. 
So it's up to you. It's up to your professionalism. It's up to your capacity to do your job right, to make them reach their destination. And that's very hard to forget. You know, that's a, a difficult thing to, to not think about. So that's all, always, at least in my mind, it is, it's always on your mind. Mm -hmm. And so you were in the military for nine years. And yep. then how long have you been flying commercially? It's going to be 10 years, two months from now, something like that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. That's so, a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. It's kind of yeah. almost like 50-50 split. So I'm curious then, did you, when you were growing up, did you always want to fly things or did you like really want to serve your country or what was the, how did you get into the military and, and flying helicopters? I always wanted to be a military pilot. I do remember that. And my parents were born in this small village in mainland Portugal. And I remember I used to spend my summers there, my summer vacations. And that village was inside this training area of the Air Force. So I was used to see the A-7, which were some fighting bombers flying up of the earth across the countryside. And as a child, I don't know, five, six years old, I remember that I was fascinated by those birds flying so low and so fast. So I think that's where I caught the bug of aviation. And since then, I, you know, I always wanted to be a military pilot and I was lucky enough. I'll say that I was able to do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so after 10 years of serving in the military and I can imagine with search and rescue as well, you would have had some amazing life experiences that made an yeah. impact um, on people and kind of going back to that word responsibility, responsible for the safety and the livelihood of many people. Then how did you, how did you decide to go and fly more things? Because I can imagine that after 10 years in the military, almost you would have been, many people would have said, okay, <laughs> I can't, I can't get into another flying object. I need to go and switch and do something different. So what was the the move into commercial aviation driven by for you? Actually, it is pretty much different. You're flying helicopters in the military or flying airlines in the civilian world. You're flying an aircraft, but it is a very different thing to do. And at least here in Portugal, it, it sounded, it is kind of like the natural progression that you can do as a pilot. So you fly in the military for some times. Um, I can tell you that those were some of the best times of my life. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I was able, I have a lot of stories to tell my grandchildren one day. That's what I usually say. <laughs> um, and then flying in the airlines, it gives you another sense of commitment. It gives you another different color of life as well. And it gives you another things, uh, such as traveling, which is really good too. Yeah, I can imagine that you you get to go to a lot of countries. And I was listening to another podcast with Ricardo, which I'll I'll link in the comments. But on that, you said you've been all pretty much all across Europe, North Africa, North America, Brazil. What's a place that you haven't gone to that you would really like to go to, aside from Australia, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say New Zealand, probably. Mm, okay, yeah. I'd love to go there. Yeah. And are you more drawn to those places where... It's, there's more nature versus like a big city. I'll say I'm drawn to those places that I don't know, you know. Yeah, nature or cities, it's the ones that I don't know that I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. You're a bit of an explorer at heart, I think, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it, yeah. Maybe that's it. So yeah. after you finish commercial aviation, you can go and become a full-time explorer. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next career pivot. 
Who knows? Okay. Well, the Portuguese 500 years ago did that, so. Oh, yes. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. It's yeah. in the genes, who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and you live in Lisbon at the moment. I live in Lisbon, yeah. So I went to Lisbon for the very first time late last year. And I remember that flight in, coming in over, you see the water, you see the the very edge of the country. I mean, it's just stunning. And then, of course, you land in Lisbon and it's amazing. So when, when you're flying into Lisbon, do you still get that little wow feeling inside of how beautiful oh, it I is? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. I'm very lucky because for me, it's the most beautiful approach in the world especially if you're flying early morning or at sunset as well. Because the, the light in Lisbon, I don't know if you saw that or not, but the light seems to be very different from other places, you know, mm-hmm. especially in, in the beginning of the day or the end of the day. The, it, it, the sky is really orange or pink. It, it's a beautiful place to fly. And a beautiful place to live, I'm sure. It is. It is. Did you like it? I loved it. Yes. And I got a chance to go back um, as well. So I've been twice now. Very, very, very lucky. But yeah, it's a, it's just a stunning place. And of course, the the natural part of it mixed with the tradition, mixed with the amazing food. I mean, it's just like, I, I know that on this other podcast I mentioned, you said that 25% of people living in, I think it was Portugal or Lisbon are from another country. Yeah. yeah. Lisbon. In Lisbon. Yeah. In Lisbon. Yeah. So I, I can understand why, <laughs> why everyone's going in. Moving to live in Lisbon. Beautiful place. Okay, so let's go back to talking just a little bit more about your your time in obviously what you're doing now, commercial aviation. And I'm really curious about the point that we touched on before because, again, I feel like there are not necessarily misconceptions about pilots, but just a lot of things that people think might be true. Like the fact that pilots live a, a kind of a solitary life that you're because you're traveling so much and you're kind of sitting in the cockpit with your co-pilot, hopefully maybe an engineer, but generally by yourself, locked in there, <laughs> hopefully getting a clap at the end of the flight, but maybe not. But actually, it's it's hugely collaborative and it relies it quite extensively on communication, doesn't it? It does, yeah. You have this thing, this concept we call cockpits, uh, resource management, and basically what it means is the two pilots in the cockpit have to be talking all the time. And they have to talk with each other without any fear of repercussion of whatever. So a co-pilot, um, he doesn't need to have afraid of the captain and to tell him that he's wrong in, in something. So communication is key in the cockpit. Um, and I, I won't say it's solitary life. I think you spend a lot of time, you know, not at home, that's for sure. You you lose a lot of birthdays, you lose a lot of special dates. But in, in the end, it's also a very exciting life, I would say. It's very rewarding to to do what we do. Yeah. I can imagine in part that it's very rewarding because you do get to work very collaboratively on with other people and you you rely quite extensively on a team of people that trust trust would be a huge component of that and again like I think you know I'm I'm drawing parallels here to people who work in corporate settings where you know you're responsible for your own component of work but you you, you don't just work with other people ideally you are a part of a team you're a part of a culture you're you've built this you know trust-based relationship with the people that you work with in your case, your that level of trust leads to the responsibility of people's lives. So it's it's quite important. So how how do you build trust with people across the entire kind of process of flying? 
I think uh, in the airlines, it has to be a cultural thing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the process of training a pilot, of incorporating the pilot into the group of pilots you already have has to be done in a very smooth way. Because of course, if you're flying for an airline that has 1,000 pilots or 2,000 pilots, you don't know every pilot. So you're not going to know every pilot in your career. It's going to be actually, it's going to be very difficult to fly with the same guy two times in the same year. So that trust is something that you need to build over time and with culture from the organization. And that comes from different things. For example, it can the most important thing in my view is the thing we call the just culture, which is basically this culture that you have in your organization where you're not afraid of reporting your own errors and you know that you're not going to be not going to be reprehended for that error because you know it, you reported it that's a very important thing of course in the military it was a little bit different because in the squadron we were perhaps 20 30 pilots maximum so you're flying with the same guys all the time so you can build that personal relationship with them so trust comes in a very different way also with that just just culture as well but it comes in a more natural way because you're flying with the same guys several times a, a month. Mm-hmm. In the airlines, it's much more difficult. That's why it's really important for the organizations to have this cultural this cultural base very well defined, especially for, for the flying crew. Right, because it's very different than when you're with the same people, you've probably built this personal rapport with them. You know them as human beings, you probably know their families versus people in the airline industry who are sort of like, it's a different shift every time. And it's not an easy thing to do, you know, because the example has to come from leadership. So it's, you have this group of very high and performance individuals, which are pilots, very technical competence. So as a leader, you know, as a corporate leader, you have to understand that you really need to have this culture in place in order to achieve safety records that are impeccable. Mm-hmm. And some airlines do it really well. Some airlines probably don't do it that well. So that's something that the industry are still striving to achieve, I think. And you have to practice what you preach, right? So you can't just say, we want all airline pilots to report where they've done an error and then you actually do get reprimanded. For it, because I can imagine that the idea of the just culture and reporting on things that didn't go exactly right is that you're you're correcting yourself, but you're also helping to correct multiple systems that are interconnected with the action that you made. It is, it is, uh, and basically, aviation is so safe because we learn from each other's mistakes. It has been like that throughout history. You know, every time you have a crash, an airplane crash, you learn from it. It's a very throughout investigation. It takes months sometimes. You spend billions of dollars trying to get to the bottom of it and learn what happened here. And I think that's something that perhaps some other industries could learn from aviation, which is we are very keen in learning from our own mistakes. And we yeah. are not afraid to, you know, to admit that, well, sometimes we do mistakes. We all do mistakes every day, even on small things. You have this brilliant book called Black Box Thinking, which is wonderful. That basically explains this way better than I, I do. But that, uh, that culture that you can build around mistakes, which is, you know, uh, make a mistake is not necessarily a bad thing because you can learn from it. I think it's essential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can learn from it. 
if you can learn from it, of course. Right. Black box thinking. Yeah, definitely. I'll drop that into the show notes as well. I think also um, the air crash investigation piece that you mentioned is really fascinating. That's something that I've been fascinated with for years. I used to binge on the TV show Air Crash <laughs> Investigations. Yeah. But I got to a point where I felt like the the knowledge, I mean, obviously it's really fascinating. The knowledge is power. So the more that you know, the the more equipped you are to make the right decisions. Yeah. But also knowledge can be overwhelming to the point where it can freeze you. So, I I mean, I personally got to a point where I watched so many of them that when I got into an airplane, I was just thinking about all the things that could go wrong. (laughs) And something small happens, you hear a sound, you feel a a certain type of turbulence. You're like, oh, okay, I think I know what's happening here. Like we're about to crash. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's the uh, the armchair expert, I think, um, situation, which you, you, um, you, you probably hear a lot of when people are talking about airplanes. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do. I, I get what you say, but in, in a pilot's perspective, the more knowledge you have, the better it is. You know, mm-hmm. The more we know, the better we equipped we are to deal with the situation we don't know. So uh, it's actually the, the opposite. So we, we strive uh, to get the most knowledge we can have. Yes. Because it is a good thing. You need to know the aircraft really well. You need to know the procedures really well. You need to know the airspace really well. And everything's changing all the time. So we have you have to be constantly studying, learning new things, uh, new procedures. And it's not an easy task, to be honest. It's not easy, but uh, it's what we need to do. Do you have a favorite example of a situation in the past where something has happened on a plane, whether it's catastrophic or not, and we've learned from it and it's improved the industry? Oh, you have a lot of situations. You can see, for example, the the two unfortunate 737 MAX crashes that you have in, in 2018 and 2019. They were a, a really, I would say, a magnificent example of how corporate culture can do to a company like Boeing, you know, where you have this kind of system which the pilots didn't know existed in the aircraft that depended on only one source, an angle of attack probe, which is something that in the aviation, everything has redundancy, you know. You have two, three, four, five times redundancy in aviation. And that didn't happen in that aircraft, in that plane. So I guess people realize that that's another way to go. Do you feel like they should have realized that after the first crash? Because <laughs> it was, you know... No, no, I think nine. they should have realized in the conception of the aircraft. Right. In the certification of the aircraft. Right. That's why the aircraft are certified. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a lot of things that went wrong with the 737 MAX. Yeah. But th- that that's what happens in every aircraft crash, you know. It's a chain of events that align themselves to have this crash. So that's why it's really important for us to study what happened so we can try to break that chain of events. So speaking of, I guess, the MAX airplane, I guess, you know, a part of the, the fault there was the systems. And we know that, that there is a lot of automation that goes on in the, in the cockpit. So I'm really curious on your take on this because, you know, there's this... Yeah kind of like saying that <laughs> planes fly themselves. You know where oh. I'm going with this. Uh, so, I do, yeah. <laughs> so obviously there is still, th- there is a responsibility to have someone who will be able to use those automated systems. And I think all parts of our jobs are getting elements of it where they are automated. 
And it means that you have to know the technology better. You have to train yourself on how all of that works. And, you know, you have to make sure that you're almost like funneling your focus on the things that are more important that can't be automated. Yeah. So how is that changing in the airline industry based on, you know, how how upskilled you have to be in the latest technology and where you focus your energy when you're actually flying the plane? You know, it, it has been an amazing evolution. And of course, the aircrafts are extremely automated right now. We have a lot of systems that are automated. It's the autopilot flies the aircraft a lot of time. But then again, as you said, you need someone to not only fly the aircraft when it is automated, but to monitor the aircraft as well. Mm-hmm. I know there's this big discussion because, and we have it inside the industry, which is if you rely too much on automation, you can actually lose your flying skills. Mm-hmm. So what we are observing right now, for example, the FAA just sent a circular, I think it was early this year, I'm not sure, about trying to incentivate pilots and airlines to fly manually more because there are these flying skills that you still need to have to fly an aircraft. If you ask me, and I think that you're going to ask me sooner or later if airplanes are going to fly themselves soon, (laughs) I think that eventually that's going to happen. I think it's going to take a while. Technology is not there yet. You still need human intervention. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the most correct action is not the most logical one. You know, you might remember just Sully in the Hudson, you know, and that's what I usually ask people. So if you were on that aircraft, what would you prefer to have Sully at the commands or have a computer at the command? (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure the outcome will be very different if it was a computer. Yeah. Flying that aircraft and not Captain Sully, you know. Um, so I, I don't think we are there yet. Automation saved a lot of lives because it makes flying, it makes task sharing really easy. Well, not easy, but much more easier than if you were flying the aircraft in some situations. So it is an amazing tool that we have. But then again, you still need human intervention. And for that matter, I think you still need two pilots in the cockpit because that's a redundancy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I really like what you said before about, you know, that that you're almost there to obviously work together to to achieve the common mission, but also to like speak up when something isn't right and, yeah. and build that kind of trust inside of the cockpit that you can do that. The role of the pilot then to be able to like trust the automated system, but also there, you know, have the skills to be able to land the plane if something does happen. It's almost like with the growth of technology and automation of our roles across multiple industries, our responsibility as human beings becomes even more important because we're playing a very different role. We're almost not there to do the task. We're there to oversee the task, to anticipate what might happen and to really step in at a like a critical crisis point. So it makes us as human beings even more important. Yeah. That capacity that you need to have to monitor the systems, it's really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then again, for example, talked about landing the aircrafts. The aircrafts is 99.9% of the times are the pilots that land the aircraft. The pilot doesn't land automatically, just in, in some very particular situations. So you still have that interaction there. Uh, you fly the aircraft. Of course, you don't fly the aircraft manually when you're flying the Atlantic for nine hours, for example. But that capacity that you need to have to monitor the systems that you have in the aircraft is essential. So you need to get a new set of skills as well. You need to learn different systems. 
mm-hmm. of course, an aviator in the, in the 40s and the 50s is a very different aviator of uh, an aviator right now. So I think uh, mm. that's yeah. uh, some of the same skills are there, you know, the, in my view, the more important skills and then the, the mindset is still there, but we need to get a new set of skills too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, that, that I think it's true for any other job in <laughs> yes. automation, you know, not just piloting. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's happening quite a lot. I mean, even to fields like foresight where, you know, you have these automation tools now where you're saying, well, you can have an AI do a scenario plan for you. I mean, yeah, yeah. again, there's there's certain things that the, the imaginative mind and your creativity and your anticipatory thinking as a human being will come up with that a computer system can never. And then we know, going back to your point earlier, that real life throws at us the things that are truly nonsensical, complex and unexpected. And I think the biggest question is, how is that going to affect you in the long term, you know? It's a little bit mm-hmm. like the internet and what YouTube did to us. Our attention span is getting uh, shorter every time, you know? Uh, I remember I used to read a book for three or four hours and then that, that was okay. And now my attention span is really shorter. And that's something that happened because, of course, in the last 10 years, I had access to tools that, you know, the, your benchmark became that 30-second video and your brain adapts to that. So how are we going to be in 10 years from now, you know, with ChatGPT and all of these things? Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Which are amazing tools, but they change the way you think, they change the way you work, and they also change the way your creativity evolves. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it, it puts an onus on us to make sure that we're, you know, tra- like continually training and upskilling ourselves and yeah. particularly in critical thinking, because that's one thing that AI, at least at the moment, can't replicate from us as human beings. Um, okay, well, I can see the sun is setting behind Ricardo. You guys can't see that, but it's getting late in the day. So I will let you go, but I do have one last question for you. And I'm really curious about your answer, because we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. So what is your go-to when you want to push yourself to look outside of the familiar? Well, hard question. I would say that talk to other people. That's my go-to solution. Talk to someone that does something completely different what I'm talking about or thinking about. You know, I think sometimes you need to you need that view from an outsider to help you think outside of the box. Yeah, definitely. Like speak to an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure about that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, or, you know, listen, listen to a podcast where you're listening to a for very... For example, yeah. Yeah, yeah for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, very thoughtful and, and, you know, very insightful airline pilot. So, Ricardo, thank you so much for a thank really you. fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review or share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.